Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. the word of the Lord from Genesis 1, 1 through 26. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be the lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. There's this saying that you can't know where you're headed until you know where you've come from. And I think that's, I think that's a fair statement. I think that's, that's theologically accurate. And that's one of the reasons why we are in this sermon series called Origins. We're we're observing the beginning of the cosmos, the beginning of time, the beginning of beginnings. And without this origin story, we have to realize that there's no present, nor is there a future. 
Without knowing where we've come from, we cannot know where we currently are and where we're headed. As Ola Thornham said, without creation, there is nothing to save. And so this series of origins takes us back to the beginning. And this, this like I said, this, this is probably a familiar story if you've grown up in the church. You've grown up hearing as God, as creator, seven days of, of creation. But one of the things that often happens is, is we don't observe the full significance of all that's going on in these six, probably the six best days ever. And if we do not have this invaluable information that is embedded in the creation story, what happens is that we as humans, we wander aimlessly. Without knowing where we've come from, without knowing our origins, we are unsure of our purpose. We're unsure of the telos, the end goal, what this is all about. And so for, in order for us to make sense of our present, in order to make sense of, of, of what we're working toward or what we, we're striving towards or what really what God is doing throughout history, we have to go back. We have to go back to the beginning. And so... Conveniently, when we go back to the beginning, you go back to the beginning of the Bible. So if you would open with me to Genesis chapter one, it's, it's the first page of, of the real Bible, right? You've probably got some table of contents. That's not inspired by the word, of, or that's not, that's not inspired by God. There's a preface in mind that's not, but we get to the real inspired by God. God breathed scripture. The very first page of the Bible takes us to the beginning. Now this, this beginning story, the origin story sets the stage for the best story ever told. Not only is it the beginning of the story, this is the context in which all of redemptive history is going to take place. Everything takes place within creation. It's the backdrop at all times. And so with that, it's, it's an important event, but it's also the backdrop which helps us understand what's going on here. Now, as we open up Genesis, we, uh, we, we ought to think like, Theologians, we, we got to think like Bible scholars here. As, as we come to the word of God, we need to know how to read it, how to understand it, how to make sense of it. And, and usually the first thing that we do as we start a new sermon series, we talk about the literary genre of whatever it is we're preaching. If we're preaching the Psalms, that's, uh, that's poetic, right? It's, it's a piece of poetry that, that we approach it through that lens. If we're approaching the Proverbs, that's wisdom literature. It requires a different approach. If, if it's the epistles, it's different. If it's, if it's a historical narrative, it's different. Well, Genesis is unique in the sense that it doesn't, it's both all of those things and none of those things at once. It kind of sits in its own literary category. There's a little bit of epistle. There's a little bit of, uh, in the sense of it gives commands. There's a little bit of proverb as wisdom. There's poetry embedded in Genesis 1. There's history. And so because of all of these layers of this writing, it, it takes a, a little bit of skill to work our way through here and really extract what God is saying. In one sense, it is clearly narrative. Genesis tells the story of beginnings, but it's almost written like an epistle as well in the sense that uh, every letter of the Bible, every letter of the New Testament is written to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. There's a context to the letter. Well, Genesis 1 is also like that. It's written for a specific people. It's for, for written for the Israelites. Moses is the one who's writing it, and it's in, in the midst of a specific context as they are leaving. They've, they've been, the exodus has occurred. They left uh, Egyptian slavery, and they are setting out on, on a new trajectory of life for themselves. So it's almost like an epistle in that sense. It's, it's for a specific people. And while it's, that and the narrative piece, it's also instructive. See, as it's written for a specific people, they're coming out of a specific context. They have, they have a certain kind of worldview that has been developed over the last 400 years in slavery. And while there has been a remnant faithful to God who, who knew about God, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they had also been bombarded with all kinds of, of pagan religions, different sorts of worldviews coming in different angles, and it, it shaped the way that they've viewed the world. And so this is instructive. This, these passages, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, are also instructive in the sense that it's a polemic against the ancient religions that they've been exposed to. 
Now, on top of that, Genesis 1 is, is perhaps some of the most beautiful writing that's known to humanity. It's, there's a poetic flair to it, not, not in the sense that it's all metaphor. It's, it's not metaphor. It's very real. But there's a poetic flair in the way that Moses presents the days of creation, both in its structure. You can see form. There's a poetic form, and, and God said, and there was, and there was morning and evening. You know, like there, there's a poetic cadence to it. But there's also, there's also poetic wording that's in this that, that we, we might miss because we're not reading in the original Hebrew language. And then, on top of that, the scripture gives us sort of a, a kind of law. You could call it a creational law, a natural law. God has created and designed the world to have a specific kind of structure. It works in a specific kind of way. And so you can say, going to the creational account, there is a kind of law embedded in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so you here see all of these different literary genres sort of melting together. Now, it's, it's no wonder why when we see all these different layers of literature going on here, it's no wonder why St. Jerome, who's one of the, the early church fathers around 420 uh, AD, he forbade anyone under the age of 30 to read, the, read chapter one of Genesis or expound it to others. He, he thought it was so complex, so nuanced, so much uh, going on there that, that just a, a simpleton 30-year-old can't just step into it um, and, and try to unpack it. Now, thankfully, I'm just barely above that mark, so I'm going to try, try my best. But, but Luther also said this. He said that men twice that age rarely achieve anything worthwhile when trying to speak on this. And this just goes to show that there's so much packed into Genesis chapter 1. There's so much that we could, we could literally spend the, next, I mean, the rest of the year just on Genesis 1. It's loaded with significance. Now, one of the things that typically happens as we open Genesis 1 is that oftentimes we come to this passage asking the wrong kind of question. We, we come to it um, because we live in a, a secularized society um, our schools have been bombarded by the ideology of, of Darwinism. We come to Genesis chapter one looking for rebuttals against our Darwinian science teachers from high school who told us, well, the Big Bang is real. Like it's not, it's not a theory, it's legitimate. And we come to this wondering how, if this, if this is what my authority says, my teacher says, and God's word says something different than that, how do we reconcile it? So we kind of come to it looking for scientific proof that these two things can be held together, but these two things cannot be held together. That God, God made the world. The uncreated creator created all things. And so when we come to, to Genesis 1, um, trying to use it as a scientific proof, it's like using a screwdriver as a spatula. It, it, it might get you a little bit, but it's not, it's not going to flip that whole egg, right? And because Genesis 1, is, it's, it's in its own literary league. We, we must take special care with it as we move into it and try to unpack it. And so it's with that in mind, we're going to ask the Spirit for help. We're going to open it up and become students of God's Word. We're going to let God's Word help us interpret God's Word. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to the very beginning, Genesis 1, chapter or Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right there just eliminates the whole worldview of Darwinian theory. In the beginning, before there was anything, God created. See, the Big Bang presupposes that, we're so, that there was something to explode from. And the Bible tells us in the beginning, there was nothing but God. And so in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Now, last week, we, we worked through this creator-creation distinction, very important for us to reckon with, that there is a very clear distinction between God, the creator, and all other things as creation. And what we're doing today is turning our view, I, I mean, we're, we're still 
seeing God throughout all this. We're seeing God's activity. But, but what we're actually watching happen, what we're seeing unfold before us is creation now beginning to take shape. That's very literally what's happening in verse two. It says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now this here, um, if, if I were able to, to read this in Hebrew, you would be able to hear some of the poetic stuff that's going on. In Hebrew, it says, the earth was tohu vabohu, right? There's a rhyme, the earth formless and void. Now what this tells us is that the space that was was empty. It was unformed. It was it was uninhabited, as in nothing existed, and also uninhabitable. It could not sustain any kind of life at all. And so in other words, there, there is nothingness. Now, this idea, this Hebrew idea of nothingness, um, if you were with us back when we, we read um, through um, the book of Ecclesiastes, the theme of Ecclesiastes is vapor. Vapor, meaningless, meaningless, vapor, emptiness. Right, you see the same kind of poetic language that it's all futile, it's all in vain. This is sort of the, the imagery. This is what's meant to be invoked here, that there's nothingness. And if there's nothingness, this is empty, it's void, it's futile. That means that there's no material, there's no purpose, and there's no order. Now, this is where we get this theological concept um, that God creates ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. There was no matter, no material, no purpose, no order, and God creates something from nothing. Not just something from nothing, God creates everything from nothing. And as we keep reading, after I just say all this, you say, well, wait, you, if you keep reading, just talked about these deep waters. How can there be nothingness yet, a, as it says here in verse two, darkness over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters? Now, if there's nothing, then how can there be waters? Well, what this is describing, again, is a poetic. This, this is uh, shaped by an ancient worldview and, and the way that they understood nothingness was in, in, in sort of um, a dark, deep, chaotic ocean. Um, you can think of it as like TV static, okay? So, well, which, I don't know, there's maybe people who don't understand what TV static is because we're all Netflix days, but, but back in the day when he had an antenna, you, if you didn't get a, a channel, you, your TV screen would flicker this white and, and black stuff. And that stuff is kind of stuff, but also it's nothing. <laughs> you know, it, 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 st the static that you see is, is nothing, but it's a way of, it, of describing the nothingness is that it's just static. And that's, that's what it was, this deep, dark, chaotic ocean. It's, it's the, the ancient way of describing a non-reality of pre-created world. And it's over this nothingness, it's over the non-reality of a pre-created world that the Spirit of God hovers. So here we see this, there's this poetic stuff going on here. Now, now some people, um, there's a debate about is, is Genesis 1 and 2, is this a summary of what's to come or is this like the preamble and then it, it, it breaks down further and further? And I think it's both. I think it serves in both ways where in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a summary of everything that just happens. But at the same time, it's setting us up for everything else that's going to come down the road. Now, this is where things start off here as, as this pre-creation nothingness. And it's from this, God begins to create. God intends to create an environment that can be inhabited. So taking, taking a place that is uninhabitable, and then in days one through three, making them a place that is sufficient for life, that is habit, ha, habitable, then he fills that new created space with creatures in days four, five, and six. And the method that God creates 
is by the power of his word, the logos. When God said, it's, we see this, this cadence, this, this repetition, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. We're seeing the word of God. He's commanding things into existence. Now, it's, it's in this, this realization that we see God, who we know as, as the first member of the Trinity, we see the Spirit of God, who's known as the third member of the Trinity, who's hovering over the face of the deep. And then we see the Word of God, the spoke Word of God, who is a second member of the Trinity, who then later goes on and puts on flesh. We see here in the creation account that all three members of the Trinity are present in creation. In fact, this is even, even referenced in the fact that, that the word God, uh, Elohim, is a plural version of that word in Hebrew. Now, what sets this apart, what sets up the Israelites uh, to, to differentiate them from all of the other pagans that they have been sort of surrounded by throughout their existence is that as they hear, as they look at this and see Elohim in the sense of, of gods in plural, they're not thinking a plural number of gods as the pagans think. They, they say that there's this whole host of other gods. It's a whole cohort of these gods who are in the spiritual realm and they've got different agents or you know, different responsibilities or different dominions and, and their duty is to find the right God and worship the right God to get the right thing. Now when Moses is using Elohim in the plural, he's not using it in the same way of thinking of a plurality of gods. Rather, he's speaking of it in a plurality of persons. Deuteronomy 6, hear O Israel, the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is one God. Judaism, Christianity is monotheistic. There is one God, but in the sense that Elohim is used in the plural, it reveals that there are three persons. There's a plurality of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what we see from this is that from nothing comes everything by the command of the triune God. Now this, I don't know, guys, this is something that every time we hear this, we should be like, dang. And we get so used to the idea that, oh yeah, of course, of course God could do that. But from nothing, everything came by God's command. Now, Later on, we're gonna see that God makes man as an image and, and part of being made in God's image is that we get to share God's creative traits. That the God creates mankind to be artists and engineers, um, to be designers and architects. God creates man so that we too could be creative and build off what God has already created. But the difference between our kinds of creation and God's kind of creation is that God creates from nothing. What we do is we take the raw materials that God has already supplied and then we fashion them in different ways. And we'll talk about this later on as we move into the cultural mandate, the creative, to take dominion, to fill the earth, to multiply, to subdue it. That's all wrapped up in there. But this this shows us that we are, there, there's a certain sense where we're like God and we are to be creative like our creator. But also, again, there's this creator-creation differentiation. Now, for us to really appreciate the creative tendencies, the creative traits of God, we, we really need to press into here uh, the, the, the space and the realms that God creates in days one through three. So let's, let's turn here. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made, whoops, I started too far ahead. Verse three, I mean, not six. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the, the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Then we see that's day one. Creating structure, light and dark. Day two, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and it separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And, and there was evening and there was morning the second day, the day three. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together 
into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So in day one, we see God creating light. In day two, God creates an expanse. Day three, God creates land. Now, day one and three are pretty straightforward. When we hear that God created light, okay, that makes sense. We understand what light is. We say day three, God created land, separated land from the waters. That makes sense. We know the difference. But this stuff about day two is a little bit confusing. It might need a little bit of of explaining. And this, again, takes us back to an ancient understanding of of the world. See, this this expanse in the midst of the waters in verse six is referring to the sky. It's referring to the atmosphere. Ancient culture viewed the sky as, as a solid dome that held back waters that were both above and below. And so the sky is like the cream filling of, of an Oreo, okay? There's, there's water below, there's water above, and the sky is what presses the waters apart. Now in day three, we see that the waters that are below the sky, then land emerges from it. And so at the end of day three, we have, we have light and darkness. We have sky and water. And then day three, and uh, land and water comes on day three. Now, as we see God build the infrastructure, right, to, to take an inhabitable place and turn it into a place where flourishing and life can take place, we see this cadence in verse three through five. This, it gets repeated in, in almost every single section where it says, and God said, so here's a command. God said, let there be light, day one. And then God saw the light because the light, boom, it happened. And then God saw that the light was good. So God pronounces, he, he gives a, a verdict on his creation. He, he, he determines, he assesses it and d- determines if it is good or is bad. And God creates and he says, it is good. And then God, we see God separate. So it's not a, a blur. There are clear distinctives. There's def- definition for the things that God has created. There's light and there's dark. And this is a binary thing that gets repeated over and over. You get light and dark, sky, waters, land, waters, right? There's clear boundaries between the two. And then we see, as, as God separates it and makes distinction, God names it. That God, God is the one who calls light, light, and land, land, and the sky, the sky, the heavens, the heavens, the waters, the waters. God gets to name them. Now, what we're seeing here is God taking this inhabitable space, making it habitable, that is conducive, conducive for flourishing and light, that's so much so, it's so conducive for life and flourishing, before day three is over, God starts filling the earth with life. You see plants start to come up and God said, let let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw, again, God saw that was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So God starts filling the space with life. The space was so perfect for life that he couldn't wait until day three was over to start filling it up. So days one through three, the infrastructure for life is put in place. Now we see days four, five, and six getting filled up even more. Day four, God fills the sky with the sun and the moon. It says that God... Uh, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Now, what we're seeing here is, is God is creating a method for humanity to keep track of time, to keep track of time, keep track of seasons. Now, time started in the beginning. You say, well, some people look at this, well, how, how does God know on the first day he created light and darkness, but there's no sun that, that marks the day and the night? Well, God doesn't need those things to mark time. God knows what time is. In fact, this might cook your needle too. 
Time is something that God stands outside of. That he's not subjected to time the same way that we are. God is able to be outside, exist outside of time in that he creates it. And so now you have, like, you have matter, you have space, and you have time. God starts existence. I got detoured there. Let me go back. So these suns, the sun, he creates the sun, he creates the moon, and these, these, these two, what's he called them? These two great lights have a purpose. The greater light, the sun, is to rule the day. The lesser sights to rule the night. Now, I think the three words here that are most impressive to me, just for fun, is when he says, and the stars. So he talks about creating the sun, talks about creating the moon, and he talks about creating the stars, all the stars, all the galaxies, just boom, like that. Like, if you think it's impressive that God crafts the earth in, in such a, a careful manner, the fact that he just hung up the stars and it only took him three words, and the stars, mind-blowing. And God said them expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule the day over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And we saw it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning. So here we have the rhythms to rule the day and the night. Day five, God fills the waters with fishy things. Then the sky with birds. Day six, God fills the land with creatures, both domestic and wild creatures. And, and here we are seen. If, if you really sit down for a moment and, and really I mean, if you turn on Discovery Channel, if you, if you download the riot and the dance, you get to see, which the riot and the dance is this incredible nature documentary done from a Christian worldview, just blows all the BBC stuff out of the water. It's unbelievable. It's great. If you just sit there and take a minute to appreciate what God has done in days four, five, and six, you, six you'll be baffled by God's unlimited creative abilities, his artistic powers. I, I mean, God created a hummingbird and the ostrich. The elephant and the platypus, the whale and the minnow. And there are millions of other species in between those extremes. God is unbelievably creative. Now notice, as God creates these incredible animals, and I could geek out about this, I love that stuff. Um, as God creates these plants and the animals, he does, he gives them a certain kind of capacity. Let, let, me, let me just, um, so we saw it with the vegetation that from their seed, they'll, they'll yield seed and, and that will be able to produce according to each on its kind. Um, we see that, um, in, verse, in, in a day five, swarms of living creatures and birds that fly above the heavens. God created them, uh, where am I at? So he created every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. And, and he, he um, let the birds multiply on the earth is a command that God gives them. And he gives them the agency. He gives them the capacity to do this. And so we see with the animals, again, and as he moves on to, to the animals, the beasts of the earth, they would reproduce according to their kinds, according to their kinds. Yes, another opportunity to just dismantle the Darwinian idea of evolution. According to their kind, these animals progress. Now, in creating animals and plants with, with reproductive capabilities, God is showing us that he has a desire to see what he starts continue to go and go and go and go. Each, each living thing is created with seed, sperm, or eggs in order to multiply and to fill up the earth. They are to procreate in kind, not evolve into something new, and God has embedded this design in creation so that it would be so. That bunnies would know what to do to make more bunnies. This, this is God's procreative genius. He wants to keep expanding his creation. Now, before the sun sets on day six, we, we see the same procreative thing going on here that we'll see later on as we study more in depth, the Imago Day, men and women created in the image of God. 
But before day six is over, God then creates man in his image. Verse 26. He says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, you see that. Let us, let us make man in our image. Again, going back to the fact that the Trinity is present at creation. God is speaking to himself. He's not, he's not um, asking the animals for creative input on, on how to develop mankind, right? Um, animals are not superior to humanity in the sense that they get a say over us. Creation is not superior over humanity in the sense that, that it gets a say over humanity. We'll see God then creates mankind and gives them dominion over all of the other pieces of creation. But God is the one who says, let us make man in our, in our image, after our likeness. Man is the apex of God's creational activity. Everything has been building up to this moment. And unlike the fish and the animals and the birds, man was made in the image of God. There's a stamp on humanity that distinguishes us from all other creatures, all other vegetation, that there's something special about humanity and it, and it shouldn't be shocking or, or uh, pompous or arrogant for us to say this because God says there's something special. You're made in my image. Now, in, as, as image bears, man is distinct from all other creatures that God has created at this point, and man is set above the rest of creation to tend to it. We'll see more again about the creative mandate later on. But as God has created man in his likeness and image, here again we see some of the creator-creation distinction take place. Where, where God is not subjected to nor dependent upon creation, man is. If you, if you remove man from the infrastructure that God created in days one, two, and three, no life can happen. We are dependent upon God's creation, which is an extension of being dependent upon God. Because God himself not only spoke these things into existence, God is holding all things together, sustaining these things so that they would be suitable to sustain us. And so while, while humanity is subjective, subjected to, um, or dependent, excuse me, while humanity is dependent upon creation, we are not subjects of creation. Now, I'm gonna wrap this up, and I wanna, I've just basically had the chance to walk you through what happened in the six most glorious days of history. And I want to make this a sermon and offer some important observations that are, are embedded here in Genesis 1 for us. First, the creation is an act of God's eternal and matchless power. The fact that God speaks and things as complex and intricate as I mean, just even think about a leaf on a tree, how intricate a leaf on a tree is. And that's just one species, one thing. God did that through all things. God powerfully, with the word of his mouth, made it happen. Nothing else, no other so-called God can do such a thing. Not only does it show us God's matchless power, but shows us God's wisdom. If you've ever tried to build like a complex machine, um, my kids get these like little boxes from, I forget where they're from, but, but it's like they send them like pieces and they put them together and, and it's pretty intricate, gets really good instructions. God didn't have an instruction manual. When he was piecing everything together. And now if you don't follow the instructions, that little machine's not gonna work. That, that little machine's not gonna have the output that it was intended to have. Now, God, in his wisdom, he made the instruction manual. God, from nothing, from scratch, created everything to be intimately related to each other. This is one of the things that, like, um, uh, what science, that it's like when we study, um, what's the word, ecology, how 
how different environments, how different ecosystems work and how rain on a certain, so much rain creates this kind of plant and this kind of plant allows for this kind of animal to live here and this kind of animal then produces this kind of thing and just creates, God designed every single one of those things in his wisdom. We see God's power, we see God's wisdom. Now the other thing that we need to see here is that creation exhibits God's sole authority over all creation. Because God created all things, he is the authority over all things. God, by the word of his mouth, he creates. By his pleasure, God holds all things together. In fact, if we go to Colossians, well, let's see if I can pull it up real quick. Too many, too many flaps for me. Oh boy. I'm too committed to bail at this point, guys. Ephesians, Colossians, boom. It says this of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. So here God shows his power, his wisdom through Jesus, creation comes about, but it's also for Jesus. It's his, his dominion, it's his domain, it's his authority, his kingdom, it's for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This shows the authority of God himself, that he can speak and create, he can speak and things stay put. And as long as God's authority is honored, as, God, as, we, as long as we revere God's lordship, flourishing will occur. Things will be as they were designed to be. So creation shows us this, this clear authority that God possesses. And by subscribing to this authority, by submitting to God's authority, things will go well for creation. Now, one more thing that I want to show you is, is that the progression of creation provides a paradigm for development. So the fact that God didn't just speak in one day and everything, he could have done that. God didn't have to break it up in six days because he wasn't able to all fit it in in one day. He could have done it in one word, in one fiat. Boom, everything exists. But in the, in the sense that God shows us over six days, there is a creative progression that's supposed to shape us, to, to, to inform the way that we see the world, that the world is not just raw material that we hang out with and just are happy with the way it is. We are to craft it. We are to, to extract the hidden glory in creation and repurpose the things that God has given us to make cool things. Right, so there's this paradigm for development that we see in creation. Now, we see all these things, but then it comes back to this question of why. Why? Why did God create? Why did God do this? What compelled God? If he was, and this is something that we talked about last week, if God was perfectly happy in and of himself, if God was delighting in the Trinity and was totally content, what compelled God to create everything? Well, we're going to let Scripture tell us. We're not, we're not going to speculate. We're going to jump to, um, you don't have to do it with me, but you can if you want. Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verse 3, tells us why God created the world. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's it. God does all that he Pleases. Now, this is not an angsty, like God, like a teenage rebellion. I can do what I want. No, God, God does what brings him pleasure. See, God, God has pleasure in and of himself. He's, he's totally delighted, totally fulfilled, totally blessed in and of himself. But he desires to see that blessedness spill out into other places. That, that he would create creatures and people and spaces to enjoy the blessedness that is cooped up in the Trinity. 
And so God says, it is my desire to create. It is my desire to bless. Now, blessing is a gift of potency and power to, to, to bless, right? You're, you're giving the capacity for life, the potency for life, for joy, for gladness, for blessedness and pleasure. See, God wanted to fill nature. God wanted to create a nature and fill it so the blessedness could circulate. Now, when we read this, um, this makes sense if to us, this idea God wants to create to, to, to perpetuate his own blessedness. Um, this makes sense to us if we stop reading at Genesis 2. Because <laughs> in Genesis 1 and 2, um, we see very clearly the blessedness of the creation. We see like things in harmony and shalom, this peace, peace, peaceful domain that we see going on. But, but we don't live in a Genesis 1 and 2 world. Though the earth, all of God's creation, still has the proclamation that it is good, right? We're not Gnostic in the sense that the material is bad. God's created material is good. It kept that status, but it is corrupted. And because of this, because of the fact that, that sin had entered into the world, we find the, 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 the curse limiting the blessedness of life in this created space. And this all comes back to the fact that Adam and Eve failed to obey God and honor his authority. They just had one rule. Pastor Justin, if you were here for the parenting seminar uh, yesterday, he said there's a garden full of yeses and one no. And God said, this blessing, this blessing, this blessing, this blessing, this one thing, curse, it'll go bad for you. Well, they rebel against God's authority and things fall apart. And what we see is this downward spiral of creation. This is where, where roses start to grow thorns. Animals start eating each other. It's where you see hostility, the hostility that, that's, that's uh, shown in rebellion against God from, from man to God. Then we see that hostility trickle down throughout the rest of creation. The, the habitable place that God had made, the, the place of flourishing and for life, now starts to trend in the direction of becoming a wasteland. It, it, there's a, a pattern of decreation that takes place. Now, if, if God is omniscient, if God knows all things, right? So if on day one, God knew that as soon as he created and started this created sequence, that eventually there would be rebellion. Why would God still do it? Why, why would God create a place that could be corrupted? Why would God allow that to happen in the first place? And, and the answer, again, goes back to Psalm 115. God's pleasure. Because just as God was pleased to create the world, God is pleased to redeem the world. And in redemption, there is even more glory to be had. God, uh, this, this progression of development keeps working and working and glory bubbles up to the top and spills over in God's creation. This desire, this pleasure drives God to work for redemption. We see this in, in Hebrews. It says that, that the joy that was set before Jesus the joy that was set before him, because of that joy, Jesus endured the cross. By the cross, creation is redeemed. By the cross, all of the brokenness, all of, of the curses get extracted. This is God's way of restoring, of recreating the good creation that we lost in Genesis chapter three. Now this means that God delights, God is pleased to not only create, but recreate. And we're told that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Jesus found pleasure in going to the cross for you, which baffles me. Just as baffling as the fact that God can create something or all things out of nothing. 
that joy, pleasure was set before him. And that is what pushed Jesus through the pain and the agony of the cross so that we could be reconciled to God, that creation and its goodness could be restored and then elevated to an even greater glory. God is pleased to make you a new creation. But the only way that you can receive the status of new creation, to, to became, become a new creature, is to receive the givenness of new life just as you receive the givenness of life in general. To receive the grace of Christ, to understand that he came to save you, but he didn't just come to save you, but to be your Lord so that you would See him and honor him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And as we submit to Jesus as Lord, things trend in the right direction. Things go well for us. God created the space for our flourishing. And because of Jesus' redemption, that can be reclaimed. This is what it looks like. If you want to be true to your creative function, the creative destiny that God had put on your life. The only way you can do that is to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, to let him lead you, let his authority be upon you so that you can live and lead a life of flourishing, a life full of glory that is spurned on by God's grace. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, this is what we remember, that it was Jesus' body that was broken for us, his blood shed so that we could become a new creation, that we could actually live into the created reality of what we were made for as those who are under God. And this is a glorifying thing. This is our act of worship to submit to our Lord. And through this, God blesses us. Through obedience, there is blessing. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your kindness. Thank you for opening up, reopening up the way of blessedness for us. It was closed off by sin, our own futility, our, our own arrogance and rebellion. We, we, instead of wanting to honor you as creator and Lord, we desire to make ourselves creator and Lord. And we turn from that foolishness today, Lord, and we, we cling to the cross knowing that your blood is sufficient to forgive us of these sins, Lord, and, and not only sufficient to forgive, but to restore us, to elevate us to new life in Christ so that we would walk in your ways, that we would honor you as Lord and your blessings would flow, Lord. Bless us this day as we take this sacrament that you've put before us. Bless us as we walk faithfully by the power of the Spirit, making disciples, planting churches, and renewing the city, raising up godly children, um, working hard to renew our cities, Lord. Bless this. Bless us so that we could be a blessing. For your glory and for our good, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.